HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the boundary breakers of the new cookbook, Cooking Without Borders, Chef Anita Lowe and her co-author, Charlotte Druckman. Thank you for being on the show. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely book. It's, it's an amazing book, and it is so Anita. It is so you within the recipes as well as um, you know the text and the writing and the stories behind it. And I think it shows from... Knowing your background, you grew up in the Midwest, a uh, Chinese-American family, but then had a whole bunch of other worldly outside influences kind of shape your cuisine. This book encapsulates, you know, all those particular, um, you know, personal perspectives. So it's kind of amazing. Um, the Midwest, Michigan. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about it. You grew up in Birmingham. What was, uh, what was life like? Well, it, you know, it's kind of like anywhere comma USA. I grew up in the you know suburbs of Detroit. Yeah, um, I was there till I was about fifteen. So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, I think I was one of of two Chinese families in the or Asian families. Yeah, in you know that entire suburb. <laughs> yeah. in my in my school. So, well, how did your parents find themselves there? Um, I think. You know, my my both my parents were doctors, and um, they found, I guess they just found work there, and or they, you know, they were looking at 
different hospitals to work in and they were like well you know birmingham has a good school system (laughs) (laughs) so so we ended up there yeah and until 15 after that where did you go um, then I went to um, Massachusetts. I was in um, Concord, Massachusetts for uh, about uh, for three years. Yeah. And then after that, I was in New York. So you got Midwest, you get Northeast, you get the metropolis of New York. But you're forgetting an important part, Paris. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you went to school for not culinary. Um, you went to NYU, I believe? I went to Columbia. Columbia. And yeah. for what? Uh, for French. Yeah. French literature. Yeah. So... Yeah, and then I, I was I was studying. Um, Columbia has a has a summer program there called Reed Hall, and I was there for a summer. Um, and I just I fell in love with that city and had to go back and um, was learning how to cook for myself at the time anyway because yeah. it was college, and so I ended up in uh, I ended up in cooking school there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome, I guess, to be. Uh, in your formative cooking years and be a Francophile. Yes. <laughs> so, rather than be stuck in the Midwest. Yeah. So, Charlotte, it must have been intimidating uh, dealing with someone who went to school for literature, loves France and Parisian culture and cuisine as much as you, to collaborate on something like no, that. No, I think the intimidating part was just, you know, her skill as a chef, but actually the literature part was the thing that made me want to work with her because if you're someone who loves words and you love France, you love French culture. And I have to say, I did the Reed Hall program too. Oh, you did? I don't You're know awesome. if we ever discussed this. Yeah, but I, I did it over a summer as well. Yeah. Um, so for me, that was actually one of the things that made me most excited to work with Anita because I knew that we would have that in common and that she would care about the words. And, you know, if you're a writer, even though you know that the food's always going to come first, you want the words to count. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, there are headers, and we'll get to recipes specifically. But um, one of my favorite recipes in the book might not have been because of the food, but it was more so of the backstory, which was the sautéed filet of brook trout. Um, which is a French dish. Well, a riff on a French dish. Oh, right, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, what, what is that French dish? Um, you know, saumon a la zay, you yeah. know, the, it's, it's salmon with... Um, oh, yeah. Um, the sorrel cream. Sorrel, I just wanted yeah. you to pronounce it because I would have butchered that. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might have just butchered it as well. But. <laughs> much, much better than I would have done. <laughs> but it was a signature dish of Maison Trois-Gois. Um, yes. And you first had it at Le Bernardin. Yes. Yeah. I, or I might have had it in Paris as well. I, I definitely remember having it at, at Au Pied Cochon in Leal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, definitely remember having Which it. Which is still there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real real old-fashioned classic, you know, the ubiquitous French. So, so, but how did you make that little change to make it your own? Um, you know, I didn't. I actually didn't take it that far. I mean, I... I brought it up to date. I think we were actually frothing the the sauce at the end, yeah. you, making it, you know, I don't know. Um, and then we were smoking the, um, we were cold smoking the trout roe. Yeah. So it, and it was, and on top of it, it was on a roasty potato. So it was kind of like, yeah, so it was kind of like an old fashioned, you know, yeah, potato pancake with yeah. smoked salmon. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, Drew that line between those two dishes. Awesome. I mean, Charlotte, when you see these things happening in front of you, do you see where the dish came from and where Anita, uh, you know, put her Midas touch upon it? 
Yes, but I think um, you and I have talked before about art. So but yeah. this was just making reminding me of it a little bit. It's sort of like when there's a painting, and we might not know what the artist's intention is, but that painting's been around for long enough, or it impacts us hard enough, I guess, that we draw our own story. So sometimes you can have one of Anita's dishes, and you can kind of think it's telling one story, and then sit down and talk to her, and you might learn it's actually telling another one. So yeah. I think I can often, especially now that we've worked together, I can see where things came from and where they went, but sometimes I'm still surprised. Yeah. So let's talk more about those formative years, Paris. Do you remember the cuisine, like what you first ate there, what, you know, uh, what your experiences that completely changed your palate and moved you away from literature into cooking? Um, you know, I don't think it ever moved me away from literature, but I think it, it, I don't, gosh, yeah, just everything like the bread. Yeah. You know, for a long time, you couldn't really get you know, a real baguette in this city. Yeah. You know. Do you still think you can't? Because oh, now, I, you, now you absolutely can. Okay. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, and I might be dating myself here. Yeah. But <laughs> it, back in the day, you, it was very hard to get that baguette. And yeah. that, that was one of the things that, that, that light, airy crispness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's so many, so many things that were... Yeah, really impressed upon me. So then when you came back to New York, you found yourself in a couple pretty lauded kitchens, Boulet, Chanterelle. Um, how did you transition into that? I mean, did, did you just walk up and say, oh, I was in France, I ate some really good stuff, and I want to cook? Well, I had already taken, you know, I, I, uh, I, I did read Hall the summer after my sophomore year, and then I went back and went to cooking school yeah. the summer after my junior year. So I had already had like a, you know, four weeks of cooking school. Yeah. Yeah, which I, you know. Yeah, because you'd hire someone after four weeks of cooking school these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, I might, yeah. actually. I don't, I don't require, you know, yeah. a, a degree. You know, you just have to be dexterous and yeah. have a head on you um, and a palate. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was going to be a great way to keep up my my language skills. And um, I was applying at all the, all, the, all the French restaurants. Yeah. And I actually I applied at Le Berndin, Yeah. And they didn't have a space for me, and they sent me down to Boulay because um, they knew that he was looking. Yeah. So. And how was your first day at Boulay? I I think it was really exciting, but I did start in I started in the summer of 1988, and that was um, a record breaking um, heat wave. <laughs> it was like 30 days of heat wave. Yeah. And we were, you know, I just wasn't used to it. You know, I really wasn't, you know, I wasn't used to standing on my feet for that long. I mean, we were working, you know, six days, you know, 12, 13 hours a day. Um, yeah, and I just was, and I was getting sick every night. But, like, you know, the food was so exciting that I just kept, I, I actually acclimated it finally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when you're in that dizzying chaos of the kitchen and you find this... This this zone that you get in and you don't realize the effects of the outside world and you just kind of I yeah. call it the flow. It's yeah. like when jazz musicians get in flow. Yeah, it's like they're in flow. <laughs> yeah, just excellent. Um, then after Boulay, moved around the city a little bit. Where else did you cook? Um, I worked at Chanterelle. I, I actually didn't cook at too many restaurants. I worked at Chanterelle and um, I worked very briefly at the Sun of the Dove, uh, which I don't usually keep on my resume because yeah. it was so brief but um um yeah I, I those were the base you know i worked chanterelle and boulet and then became a chef yeah so and then anisa opened up out of those yeah we opened anisa in in, two, in 2000 yeah. yeah 
Excellent. Yeah. And I mean, so 10 year anniversary is coming gone already. Yeah. 11 years. <laughs> I mean. And I'm still alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and oh, so what? You've had a fire in the restaurant. You've yes. rebuilt. And so, I mean, true Phoenixology of both <laughs> the space and your career. Um, but what's been consistent is that, again, I mentioned this point of view, which, uh, you know, Charlotte now, you know, knows inside and out is so yours. There are all these other outside influences, but it's put through your mindscape in such a way that it's almost easy to realize that these are Anita's recipes. Um, Charlotte, like, what what are signifiers of Anita's work for you? Um, there's usually, I mean, I don't know, this is going to sound kind of sweeping generalization, yeah. but I feel like there's usually something that she either had in her head or tasted somewhere, and it sticks with her. But then she'll take it and often fuse it with another dish that comes from, if not another culture, just almost another vernacular. Like, there's there's a lot of great sort of high-low, I think, interplaying that happens, too, where you might get something that's got a really sort of strong French techniques technique behind it. But then you'll have something like the potato pancake with the smoked fish, and that, that feels almost more comforting. Um, but... The nice thing about, I mean, nice is actually too weak a word for it. I think the great thing about it is that she's never deliberately trying to fuse cultures together. We, yeah. we joke about this. It's not like she'll be like, oh, I want to take a little bit of Hawaiian, and then I'm going <laughs> to yeah. add something Haitian, and yeah. then we're going to flip it on up with Tex-Mex. Like, it's just sort of these things that come to her as someone who thinks about flavors, mm-hmm. and she's not thinking about it culturally. She just, I think, gets to a point where she's thinking about what tastes good and things that she's had yeah um i don't know if you think that's right but but for me that's often when she's telling the story of a dish um it's so much more motivated by the ingredients and how they come together than you know oh, yeah absolutely yeah but that's just I, I mean i grew up in a very multicultural home so this is basically just my identity in some level yeah i know it, it's funny to see a whole bunch of korean ingredients in there and i, I wonder how many people assume that you're korean oh and chinese american yeah all the time because yeah. what chinese ingredients do you have in the the book or in your lexicon um yeah that it, it well there are some chinese yeah but you know actually that i i really don't feel comfortable at all you know people are constantly asking me about chinese cuisine and i'm like well I'll Google it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always think it's yeah. funny now that we've worked together for so long. It's like Anita has become sort of everyone's favorite equal opportunity Asian chef. So like yeah. if they need something from an Asian country, yeah. they'll be like, oh, hey, Anita. Yeah. You know, like. Pan Asian. It is. Yeah. Right. Like they'll be like, yeah. oh, you can do Korean. Oh, you could do a little bit of Japanese. OK, we're going to give you Chinese. Yeah. You know, as long as it sounds well, I love Asian. all that. I love all yeah. that. And I do, you know, and I have done as much. You know, research as possible in, in all of those things. But yeah, I mean, China is so huge. It's really hard to know. I mean, there's many cuisines within yeah. the country. It's very hard to really be an expert on on that. Yeah, I mean, aside from it being provincial, Chinatown's so huge here too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are so many different foods and dishes <laughs> to even eat through that it seems like an impossibility. Um, Aside from, you know, being Chinese-American, were there any Midwest food influences that have found their way into your kitchen? Oh, gosh, there has to be. Yeah. <laughs> like cheese balls. Cheese balls. Yeah. <laughs> I did make a cheese ball one year, yeah. and, I, and I didn't realize I was doing it. I, it was for um, for New Year's Eve, because we do a special menu every every year, and I... 
it was it was actually I, I actually realized it after the fact as I was like plating it that it was actually just a cheese ball. <laughs> Wait, there's I think there's a honey baked ham reference in the book, or yeah. we might have had to cut it for room, but there was in the pea chapter. Yeah, and um, then the elderflower, which I grew up in my backyard. That that, that was growing up. Yeah. In, oh, yeah. that was growing in my backyard. Oh, and oh, um, was it? Kohlrabi? Didn't someone? One of your neighbors had really long stalks of something. Oh yeah, the kohlrabi. Uh, yeah. They, you know, one of my neighbors was growing kohlrabi. Yeah, I don't know if that's specifically Midwest. I mean, yeah, but, but it's were in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, the elderflower came from our uh, our neighbors that were from. I'm not, I can't remember where they were exactly from. Yeah, but. So what I found really amazing and akin to, I, and I didn't even realize this of your life and mine, is there was a point when I had a nanny, and she was from I think Saint Vincent, um, and I learned to eat Caribbean food. Yeah, um, <laughs> I remember eating goat at her son's wedding when I was very young. I remember my brother getting drunk off rum baba cake, <laughs> like when he was way too young to be yeah. drinking. Um, but you were influenced by a lot of nannies in your life, and oh, you absolutely. had a Hungarian one that was kind of a... Yeah, she was with us for the longest of any of them, and I really, you know, she really raised me in some ways. Yeah. She was, you know, you know I, her chicken paprikash was one of the, you know, my favorite dishes growing up, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you see those people, you know, pop up in the book, and... Everyone uh, assumes cookbooks, I think, to be this this lore of the people you worked for, you know, your right. mentors yeah. in that field. But th- that there are these food memories that come out of, you know, uh, childhood and non-familiar people that made a mark on your life. So um, I just want to say that I had, I guess I, I don't usually say nanny. I say she's like my second mother because she's yeah. really, and she's still alive. So she is kind of, but also St. Vincenzen. And my favorite thing was when my parents would go away and she would make us her food. I was never happier. Yeah. Also, pumpkin fritters and conch fritters. Hello. Did you have? I I don't know. The pumpkin ones I loved because I have a sweet tooth and they were like totally covered in sugar and cinnamon. But the conch fritters and um, yeah, rice and peas. Yeah. So good. I was so happy. Yeah, every year. Plantain, too. Every year when uh, the the West Indy Day Parade happens in Brooklyn, I always almost go out there for doubles and all that kind of stuff. Because like, that almost feels more like, you know, food that I remember from my childhood than my actual rearing. My grandma was Romanian and there was some of that stuff. My, you know, I worked at a pizzeria in high school. I know some of that stuff. But then some of those singular flavors like goat and rum baba cake kind of stuck out. Um and, you know, the the title of this book is so befitting of not just this conversation, but of your, you know, travels and travails and people that you met. I mean, it is borderless cooking. It is, you know, without worrying about where it came from and how things or people were perceived it being combined. Um, were there ever points in your career that you were worried about pigeonholing yourself or becoming controversial for pulling in something that wasn't, you know, uh, an inherent ingredient of a certain dish? Um, no, I mean, I think, I think it is important to sort of have a, an understanding of where, of the classics. Um, is it necessary? Depending on, who, you know, depending on the chef, maybe not. I, I, yeah. Um, no, I don't think I've ever really worried about stuff like that. I think... You know, Anise is a really small restaurant, and 
you know, it's we're not we're, we're not cooking for the masses on some level. So. Yeah, but I think when a lot of it would come up a lot when we were working on the book, I think people are more inclined to want to pigeonhole Anita. Which I think, ha- I mean, I think it happens to chefs in general. So if anything, I think you almost find yourself wanting to s- to stay away from wherever you're being pigeonholed. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So oh, it no. makes you, it almost yeah. makes you braver. It's like if everyone's just going to assume that what I'm doing is this thing anyway, I might as well do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. Because. But at the it, same time, like, you got to promote your restaurant. And if what yeah. people want are Asian things, you know, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to show people the breadth of your knowledge and cuisine, because I don't think you remember, but the first time I ever met you was for Seder. Oh, right. (laughs) So you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. Back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Anita Lowe and Charlotte Druckmann, co authors of Cooking Without Borders. And I only wish we had the microphones on during the break because I'm going to try to recreate this verbatim. Um, the first time I met Anita randomly in New York, I don't, I don't even know how many years ago it was now. Um, I was photographing an assignment and it was right near a staff meal, and she invited me to sit down for that said meal. And it happened to be Seder. Um, I grew up in a household where, you know, we had <laughs> <laughs> we had Seder. Uh, it was the and I think we talked about this on the last time Charlotte was on uh, Maxwell House Haggadah. I mean, it was like I don't know. It was it was it was that amazing mess of what a Seder is, but it was the brightest, best flavors I've ever had uh, of a Seder, and I was totally wowed. And it was totally memorable. And then when I told someone, oh, I just had Seder at, you know, Anissa, 
Um, the person's like, duh, Anita's one of the best, you know, Jewish cooks in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have known? Chinese and the Jews. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. But it it shows how not just limitless your talent is, but how you really don't define yourself by any specific cuisine. It's all almost not even technique oriented. It's all just food and bringing people together. Yeah. And um, I mean... Charlotte was saying similar things of her Seder table. It's it's not traditional anymore. Um, what what kind of crazy stuff happens in your household now? We have it's like a whacktastic Seder. <laughs> there are always <laughs> always different guests coming through. And as I was saying, because we have such a small immediate family, I tend to invite a lot of friends, and it's not a lot of Jewish people, which I think makes it more fun. Um, but my dad collects agatas, so first of all, we've got like our standard one. But then he likes to read excerpts from. When year we had the feminist agata, it was dreadful. <laughs> yeah. We were like, "Dad, put it away." It's it's kind of bad. Um, and then my mom, who just hates most traditional Jewish food, but is the one cooking, refuses to follow protocol. So she won't make a filter fish. I was saying, yeah. you know, one year she did Nobu's cod, the miso glaze cod, um, and. So we have sort of that argument where there's always the, my dad, one year, can't you just please make a filter fish? Yeah. And then, no, I'm never <laughs> making a filter fish. Or she refuses to make chicken soup. So that's the one thing we bring in because yeah. she just won't make matzo ball soup, like won't do it. Um, so yeah, every year it's something totally different. And it's really delicious, but it's not your typical, you know, like she, and she won't do brisket. Will not. Oh yeah. Thanks brisket <laughs> just sucks. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, you know, and then I was saying too that, yeah, we get to a point where there are so many not Jewish people at the table that sometimes my dad will freak out. He'll be like, where are the Jews? <laughs> um, the shiksir ratio. But we have all these, like, people have brought props, like, different, each year we get different gifts. And someone brought um, this stuffed toy that's like a chef wearing a matzah uniform and he dances. Oh, I've seen that one. So, and, then, <laughs> and then we have, like, the plagues. The plagues in stuffed animal form in a bag. So you're supposed to use them for like, (laughs) like there's blood. There's like a drop of blood, but it's like a stuffed animal drop of blood. And then there's vermin. It's like a little like insect. (laughs) And we just like pass them around. It's really strange. Yeah. But it's delightful. Yeah. (laughs) I I see this actually going further and each course being related to one of the plagues somehow. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you could really make blood, blood soup. Uh, that's like, like a yeah. Top Chef like, yeah. challenge. Yeah. Anita on Masters. Yeah. Could, you know. <laughs> it, it's amazing. I mean, you know, Anita, I never thought of you as Chinese American. I never thought of you as Jewish even after that meal. And I always <laughs> thought of you as Anita. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I, that's the same thing I think about this book. I'm like, it, it's almost like that's so Raven. <laughs> it's like that's so Anita. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, and you. and as out there as some of the combinations of things can be, I'm just like, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I both trust you. And I'm like, I totally see where she's going. <laughs> you know, I, I see how these things form. Um, Charlotte, when you guys first started putting this book together, was there a path on how to, you know, plot this thing out? Because as, as tangential as some of these recipes are, because they're from her personal history, um, how how do you show that to other people without sitting here for hours explaining where Anita's lived, where Anita's been, where she's cooked? Well, I mean, it definitely took a long time only because we had two different agents and it was sort of like, 
I think there's always the book that you ideally want to write, and then you have to be realistic. And there's the other spectrum end, which is the oversimplification. So it's about sort of finding the middle ground. But I think the idea was always to try and tell the story behind each recipe, because I think when you do that, then you do get to see how Anita thinks. And then actually, they all start to make sense as a whole group of recipes. And so I thought if we could get in personally about where they come from and then give you some technical notes on how they developed, that that would probably be the best way to go. And I think that's also why we organized it by um, the things that have influenced Anita instead of, you know, just doing it straight up as, I mean, it's still done according to course, but within that, you know, we have these like little breakdowns of influences in her life and, the other thing is that there were these bigger themes that she really wanted to get into the cookbook that I thought were equally important. Um, things like, you know, using the whole animal and not wasting anything. Yeah. Things like fishing, um, which tie into that same kind of killing what you cook. Yeah. Um, you know, and <laughs> redefining what multiculturalism is, because I think it has so much to do with her food, but it also has to do with how she's perceived you know, as a person and as a chef. So if we could get those things in without cramming it down people's throats, I think that that was something that was really important. Yeah. I, w- I just want to personally ask about the fishing. I mean, the pictures of you out in Long Island, were you clamming at that point or fishing or? Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, actually, that the striper that um, I'm holding there somewhere, Yeah, I actually caught off of Montauk. Yeah. Yeah, I went out with April Bloomfield, um, on a on a on a charter boat, and uh, yeah, I I think I that might have been the one I caught on a fly. <laughs> yeah, is <laughs> is this something you grew up doing, or you developed the passion for fishing? Oh no, eventually? we didn't do. Yeah. yeah, we didn't get to. Yeah, my my family was. Yeah, we they were very intellectual. We didn't do a lot of outdoor stuff, um, but uh, no, it's something I learned how to do right when I was um, opening a Nisa, and I've been incredibly hooked since. Yeah. Yeah. Do you it's take some of your catch and bring it back to the restaurant? Um, you know, legally that's not what we, Yeah. you know, it's, it's not possible, but yeah. um, you know, between you and me and all of the <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's listening, yeah. yeah. Um, I I I have served them to my regulars. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of stuff can you catch out in Long Island that Oh, there's really so much. Yeah, we yeah. actually was just fishing in Montauk this weekend. We caught um we caught some porgies. We caught some enormous bluefish and i caught another striped bass there was um it's not the season right now but there's black sea bass um there's fluke there's winter flounder uh people have been catching like cobia up here which is a southern species uh yeah there's a lot of different species to be caught yeah and then there's like clamming and crabs too like there's the whole you know little ecosystem yeah. Yeah. of swimmers. <laughs> so let, let's take those fish and those ingredients as a core. What kind of spins did you take on it? I mean, you weren't just simply roasting a blue fish and sending it out, uh, you know, or cutting a piece of fluke off and giving someone sashimi without any accoutrements. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the blue fish, uh, the, the blue fish recipe that I have in there, um, I, I don't know if I have more than one. I think I just have one. It, it's it's kind of you know greek turkish influence has greek turkish influence but um yeah basically i was a uh, bluefish is difficult to grill because it, it's it's a very soft meat yeah. and it can stick and come off 
and come apart. So um, that I just wrapped in grape leaves to hold it together. And then from there, you know, you wanted to, I just wanted to expand on that. So I have some charred grapes and some dill and some lemon and yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily Greek because you wanted those flavors to be there. It almost feels like a utilitarian is like, that stuff's going to fall apart. you got to yeah. wrap it up in something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I love that, you know, linear and nonlinear thought pattern yeah. about, about cuisine. Like, it doesn't have to fit in this box, but we have to make it, you know, uh, yeah. servable, you know. <laughs> um, aside from fishing, obviously you have this amount of ingredients that spans the world. How do you do a lot of your sourcing? Is it local sustainable or is it from everywhere and you know everywhere in between yeah i mean it's uh you know i try to i try to be sustainable i try try to be local you know i have a a a good friend of mine has a a farm like right i have a house in east Merchis, and um she has a, a a small farm there which i i've tried to support um that you know, that being said, it, I am trying to bring in influences from all over the world, and sometimes we bring in things from Japan, and we bring in, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I try to be sustainable by not wasting anything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I do try to be careful about using fish that are either overfished or, or harvested in the wrong way or, you know, so... I think we talked about it a little bit when we were working on the book, and I remember Anita saying, which I thought was such a good way to look at it, you want to put things like sustainability first, but you never want to sacrifice quality. So just because something's sustainable, if it's crap, which happens, just because something is being done mindfully doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. So I think when you're dealing with that caliber of restaurant especially, you're not just going to say, oh, it's sustainable, and if it's lesser, serve it. So I think it's sort of like figuring out, like I think you had said, if I know that the best version of this is maybe going to have a slightly bigger carbon imprint, I'd still rather get the best and then find the best sustainable version of it when it's ready. Yeah. You know? So it's non-compromising. Yeah, I mean, do you think that? Yeah. That's... Oh, the thing is, there's always you know, there's a million things, there's a million questions to be asked. I mean, you put halibut on your menu. It, it, halibut is a lot more plentiful on the on the west coast than it is, you know, Atlantic halibut is is overfished. So what do you, what do you buy? You know, do yeah. you do you fly it in from from the west coast, or you know, I mean, do you use has... it sparingly? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. So I mean, it, it's it's good to just. Ask the question at least and try to do your best. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah I, I like... chose to buy West Coast halibut because it's it's it, it's a more sustainable source. But I think it's almost like you come up with your own internal ethical map and then you follow it. You know, yeah. like that. There's a logic in it that makes sense. Maybe it's not like you know going to fit on a chart on your refrigerator. Yeah, but <laughs> right. But I think that there's a lot of thinking behind it. Yeah, and. Speaking of, you know, uh, this map, this mantra, um, Anita, you've carried something throughout your career, which is, again, I'll say it, you know, so you. Um, But it's also strong, feminine, and uh, Charlotte's doing a book called, uh, what is the Skirt Steak? Skirt Steak. How was it collaborating with such a strong female chef? 
Um, it was amazing. I mean, it was, I had, I knew I wanted to do the article on women chefs that I ended up doing for Gastronomica, I think, when I met Anita. And then I think the more I worked with Anita, the more, um, I think the better I felt about writing that article because I thought, okay, it's not just me. This sort of thing that I want to tap into, actually, it really does exist. It's not my imagination is some like conceptually thinking, you know. Yeah. There's something there. Um, And then, and we talked about it. I mean, I think we would talk about it almost peripherally because you don't see it in the book. But I think, you know, when you do get to the pigeonholing, there's sort of the cookbook that people want you to write sometimes if you're a female chef. Um, And then figuring out how to write the book you want instead. Um, And so then when I decided I wanted to do the book, um, we had already... We were wrapping up the cookbook, but it was really great for me to have Anita there just to bounce ideas off of. And then she was so helpful and generous um, in terms of helping me get access to some of the women that ended up participating in the book. So I definitely couldn't have done it without her. uh, Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the subtitle of the book is uh, Standing the Heat and Staying in the Kitchen. Yeah. Was it hard, Anita, to, to, you know, be in this world um, that was once dominated, still dominated by men, and defining yourself not only as a chef or Chinese-American chef or Asian chef, but as a female chef? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm often the only w- woman in the room. Yeah. I mean, that, um, that, that's, still, that's still a problem today. Um, yeah, it was difficult. It definitely was difficult. You know, you definitely got treated different, differently in different kitchens. Not all kitchens were bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all you want to do, I mean, you just want to be treated like one of the cooks yeah. and, um, yeah, that, that, that was always trying. Yeah. So. I mean, did you see feminine touches, defined feminine touches in, uh, Anita's cuisine when you were writing this book or did you never think of that gender identity? No, yeah. I don't, I mean, but I think for me, I don't, I'm someone that, tends to shy away from essentialist arguments in general. So yeah. I almost, I, I think it's a red herring to say, well, that's feminine and that's masculine. I mean, I certainly think there are things that you could say that people don't expect from men's cookbooks, right? Like maybe people don't expect the biography as much or the personal touches as much. Um, but on the other hand, you could say that maybe that's just the difference between a cookbook about home cooking and a cookbook about a professional chef. Yeah. And then it comes back to the same argument. Okay, so women only do cookbooks about home cooking and men are the ones that do whatever. It, it could go in a big circle, which is why I kind, I kind of, you know, I don't know if you think that there are specifically female things about your cookbook. Oh, absolutely not. I, yeah. I think, yeah, I think gender is a social construction. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not like you serve, uh, what are they called? Like lamb fries, duck fries in there. I think that's, that's masculine. Because oh. <laughs> But whenever I must you serve have testicles, yeah. yeah. I've, I've done testicles yeah, yeah, before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did testicles. Yeah. yeah. It was funny because um, I, I just did a, a panel that Anita was on. It was a skirt steak panel. And I, I asked everyone on the panel, well, what if we had basically a bull's balls panel? Like if yeah. it wasn't called the skirt steak panel and it was called the bull's balls yeah. you know, panel, well, what questions would you ask the men? No one ever thinks to ask the men about being men when they're all sitting up there on a panel, yeah, right? But as soon as it's like a women panel, it's like, okay, 
tell us, what is it like for you to be a lady? Yeah. <laughs> so. Answer for your gender. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of like a man with different yeah. parts. It's, yeah, it's just like kind of like these recipes and you just move the ingredients Sometimes around. Sometimes when I cook, I find myself thinking about my boobs. Yeah. You've got to watch out when you lean over the burner every once in a while. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> so aside from gender, <laughs> this has gotten so far off. I really wanted to talk about the difference between uh, home and professional kitchen um, because sometimes you see in cookbooks these recipes that are just like so far reaching that you know, I'm never going to do this at home. And even though there's complexity um, to these recipes in, in process and technique and product, these are things that I don't need a dinner party to do. Like I want to cook most of these for myself. How did you do that? I mean, like, really, how did you do that? Because it's kind of like this amazing triumph that it just just happened. It's here on the page, and often it feels so constructed. But again, you know, I know you. I know your food. And uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing that everything just seems so inherently attainable. Um, well, I, I, think, uh, I think we had to keep that in mind when we were putting together um, the book. I, I think there's some things that it, that that are in there that are reach recipes that people um, are probably going to find difficult tackling. But for the most part, you know, you try to. I mean, it's it's written for the home cook. Um, so you're looking for recipes that you've done that um, that don't take days and days to make. Yeah. 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 <laughs> One of the conversations that I feel came up kind of repeatedly when we were dealing with the publisher was the idea of well can you swap in ingredients or not wanting they didn't maybe didn't want foie gras in there and our argument was we would rather suggest alternatives but keep the original and not take the original out so if you don't want to use this that's okay you could use that but let's keep that original thing in there i think we tried to do that as much as possible because the point I mean the title of the cookbook is you know this idea that you're introducing people to flavors they don't know so if you kept taking those things out yeah then what would the premise be you know um so that was something that we had to compromise but in a way that I think still worked um but I've been telling people I think the cool thing about the recipes is that they look daunting because maybe they seem like there are a lot of steps, but all of the steps are, are quite doable. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think you might actually learn by doing them, which is even cooler. Yeah, and then there's some recipes that have, you know, five ingredients, and two of which are salt and pepper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, two, yeah, not, yeah. not uh, you know, less than a paragraph in, in method, so. Yeah, I think the only daunting thing is how do you know so damn much? <laughs> Um, I'm looking at a page with the salt broiled Spanish mackerel, which has a lot of Spanish, you know, ingredients into it. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a hijiki mushroom. Oh, uh, seaweed. Yeah, uh, seaweed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the seaweed in there. So not not to push it back into that Asian pigeonhole, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, you too. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, like there are, these are there are these amazing nuances of not only ingredient but of of you know regional cuisine so spanish with an asian ingredient or you know french with a spanish ingredient and so it's almost like this choose your own adventure thing of like where in the world and then what in the world and just mashing those all up together and seeing what you come up with well i think this is actually a perfect example of dish as text and you know you 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 look at that and you think you you see spanish ingredients you know 
I I look at that and I I think Jap- I think pretty much I just think Japanese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it doesn't really matter what I thought. I think it's more interesting what you know everyone else is bringing to 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 the to that dish. Yeah. What What do you think are the most amorphous as far as you know? Um, I can see it one way and you can see it another. What do you mean? Um, the dishes that may seem Spanish to somebody but seem Japanese to you. What What are some other great examples of that in this book? Um. Hmm. Well, I always come back to that that pea soup recipe. You know, and actually that that one. You know, I you, I just came up with. I wasn't even really thinking about where where it came from. But then, if you look at it, you can, and if you think about it, you can you can see that it's got you know Japanese influence. It's got Eastern European influence, or. Or maybe it's not. It's 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 moot to say that it has influence. It's just you you can see that there are um, classic pairings from these different cultures. Yeah, yeah the within the sweet. Yeah, the, that oh, could that, be southern. That could be yeah. yeah. That recipe was the linchpin for the proposal. Like when we yeah. were just trying to to figure out what the book would look like, that was the recipe that. Almost like if you took a kaleidoscope and turned it and looked at that recipe from every angle, that's sort of how we started blowing up the idea for the book. Because it had so many influences, depending on where you were looking or who was looking at it. Yeah. So you wouldn't consider it global cuisine? Sure. Yeah. Why not? I mean, you know, I think we all shy away from different monikers, you know, fusion global yeah because they kind of sound dated but at the end of the day that kind of is what it is you know yeah um yeah and does it taste good is probably the most important question at the end of the day the coolest i think the coolest recipe and that it's the recipe that you can no longer attach a culture to is the shrimp with that the yellow pepper kind oh, of puree with so the tamarind old. it's yeah, so really old, old but it's recipe, the one that yeah. it's like once everything <laughs> comes together you you're you're like at a loss you're just like i don't i don't yeah. know what i'm tasting it's just really good but it's much harder to tease out i think um than the other recipes excellent yeah it's it's so called like pangea cuisine <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> And that almost sounds yeah. Asian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Cooking Without Borders. Out now. An excellent book by Anita Lowe and Charlotte Druckman. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. 
You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Food Karma. To kick off the New York City Meat Week in style, Meat with a Twist will bring together the best chefs and mixologists for a cocktail food pairing party on November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Meat with a Twist features 10 cocktails paired with 10 chef selections highlighting local, sustainably grown meats such as duck, lamb, chicken, pork, beef, bison, and ostrich. The party will launch a week's worth of events throughout the city that celebrate the slow food movement bringing sustainable meats to our tables. Again, that's November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Updates, tickets, and more information are available at meetweeknyc.com.